Well, I wanted to tell you a little bit about some stuff that's been going on with me. Um, so in January, um, when Ben and Sarah first kind of stepped into their process, so I, I think everyone knows that um, Ben is taking this lead pastor position in Vancouver. And, um, and so in January, we started talking about it and they were praying and they were kind of taking their first steps. And uh, as, as we kind of started it looking like it was really going to happen at that point, um, we were thinking, at least I was thinking for sure that it would be, they would be transitioned by May or June at the latest. That's kind of what we were thinking. And so um, around the same time as that happened, um, Taryn emailed me and she said um, that she was thinking about stepping down from her position as hospitality leader. And she was gr graciously giving lots of notice. Um, she was said, I I'd, I'd love to serve till June. And then I was thinking maybe we could train up someone else to take that role, um, June. And then uh, I met with Jaden and Becca and they shared with me some of their marriage plans. And so they were at the time thinking that um, right after they got married, they would um, do a, an, an international Bible school. They'd go somewhere and do this Bible school together as a married couple. And they were thinking of doing that at the time in September. So, um, so then, so I'm just walking you through my, my experience. So then COVID hit, that was in March. And of course, when COVID hit, everything kind of shifted. Lots of, lots of dates shifted. Lots of transitions shifted. Everyone's kind of trying to figure out how to walk forward in whatever plans they had. And, uh, and that's when the school, of course, pulled the plug on us meeting there. Everyone kind of got the plug pulled. But, um, but for us, it was, it was kind of like in the indeterminate future, you know, so they kept saying month by month, you know, you're not going to get a rental. You're not going to get a rental. And then now they just, we just don't talk kind of <laughs> like they don't have to send me monthly updates. They're like, we'll let you know someday when this works out again, you know? So, um, so I'm sitting there. So just picture this with me. So I'm sitting there. I soon will, I will have no worship leader. I will have no hospitality leader. We'll have no, Jubilee Kids leader, we'll have no setup team leader, and no location to meet, even if we could meet. I mean, there may have been a few moments during that time that I thought maybe Jubilee was folding. <laughs> I could have crossed my mind. Maybe it was going under or collapsing or snapping or crashing or shriveling or dying or whatever word you want to put to it in your moment of anxiety. And of course, the question comes, what's left? What's left? As we come into a new fall season, I think it might be helpful for us to rethink, to reorient, to retask ourselves around what it means to be the church. What it means to be the church. This is a helpful process if, like me, you have a hard time with change which maybe you're experiencing. This is a time of unprecedented change. Have you heard anyone say that recently? Like everyone says that all the time. This is a time of unprecedented change. This is a time of unprecedented change. I mean, it's true though. Everything is changing. How we work, how we do school, how you 
grocery shop, how you gather with friends. I mean, how we gather as a church. It's, it's all changing all the time. Businesses are going bankrupt. The government is burning money like there's a forest fire. People are faced, whatever your opinion of that is, people are faced with new challenges and obstacles. And the church, I mean, will we make it? Are we going to be okay? That's what I'd like us to talk about for the next few weeks. Uh, our passage this morning is 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. And I think he has some things, Peter, as he's writing, that speak to us where we are this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I mean, our foundation, you guys, and our future are firm in Jesus. That's our big idea this morning. Our foundation and our future are firm in Jesus. It's helpful in times like this, I think, to, to remind ourselves of the basics, to go over the important questions. And for me, at least, one of those important questions that I've kind of been thinking about is, how would one go about destroying the church? <laughs> that was meant to be a little bit funny, but I don't know. Maybe you think about that all the time and it's not funny to you. You're like, yeah, that's a good question. How would one go about destroying the church? And so, you know, if we were really actually thinking about this, you know, would you, would, would they burn down buildings? Is that how they would destroy the church? Would they vandalize buildings? Would they take away our locations? Would they take away our worship leader or our pastor? Put them in jail or something. Or our ministry team leaders or our leadership team, or our kids' church, or our kids' camp. Would they shut down our kids' camp, maybe? Or our men's retreats? Or take away our charitable status? How would they destroy the church? In Acts, actually, they did try to destroy the church. And I'll read you a little section of how they tried to destroy the church. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This is what it says. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So just to be clear here, so to destroy the church, Saul has to stop people. He's got he's to go get men and women, and he's got to go from house to house, and he's having a hard time because they keep scattering. They keep spreading, and, you know, they're, they're hard to catch, these house-to-house people, scattering like the wind. And as they do it, they keep doing what the church always does, which is to spread the good news of a living hope. That's what they do. See, we are the church. We are the church. We're not a social club. We're not event-based. So if you were looking for that, you could go join like a book club or some kind of event-based group. 
We're also not a volunteer club. We're not service-based. If you were looking for that, you could join the Rotary. That's a great volunteer club. We're also not an activist group. So if you're looking for something that's really change-based, you could join Greenpeace or some other environmental group or some kind of activist group. See, we're the church. So we're this group of people who knew we needed a savior and we have encountered the living Jesus and we're being transformed. We have been and are being transformed, reborn into a living hope, into a great inheritance, it says. And now we're part of this family, this body, this community, this vineyard or whatever word you put to it. And yes, there are uh, events. And yes, there are service opportunities. And yes, there's a lot of change happening in us and around us and in the world around us, hopefully. But we're the church. We're not destroyed when someone, uh, when we lose our location. We're not, uh, we aren't in trouble if we lose or reshuffle leaders to places where they need to be. We could even be killed because the heart of the church is indestructible. Did you know that? It's that that prevails against the gates of hell. Because we're born into a living hope and an eternal inheritance. I like this idea. I was thinking more about this idea of being born. And uh, a few years ago, Lauren and I had our first baby. I just told Maddie I was going to tell this story. And she looked at me sheepishly. No. I look sheepish. Lauren and I had our first baby. I won't name that baby because I don't want to embarrass her. But when she was born, she screamed like a wild banshee, like just, and, and just turned bright red. And so we called her affectionately Little Lobster because when, she, when we bathed her, when she was weighed, all these things, she just would go bright red and just cry. And uh, we thought it was cute. And then she grew and she didn't sleep very well through the night and we despaired of ever sleeping again. And we now empathize with families whose babies don't sleep very well. And she learned, she started growing and she would crawl around and she didn't really show very much interest in walking. And so, you know, it's your first child and you're like wondering, is there something wrong? You know, and so we were, I was really trying to get her to walk. And so when she turned one, we were actually in... Uh, we were traveling, and so it was in the Amsterdam airport. We were with this group of young people, and Maddie took her first steps. I wasn't going to name her. Um, that little baby took her first steps, and, um, and we all shouted, and then she didn't walk again for many months. And so uh, she was a little bit slow in that area, but, um, but she did uh, have a knack for words, and so she, she had this vocabulary, and we were like, oh, that's neat, and she learned to read, you know, when she was five, she started reading. She really loved it and uh, gr kept growing. And this week she drove her brothers to stalker in Surrey. I mean, that's how it goes. Suddenly the baby, the little lobsters driving other kids around. You know, we had five of these, five new births, newborns. And the one thing they for sure all had in common was that when they were babies, they didn't know they were a baby. They just lived. They just, they don't really know what's going on. They're just kind of going through life. And as they grow, they learn more. They become more aware of their world. 
Uh, Miriam and I have this game we play where um, she's our actual baby, not a baby, but she is our baby child, our youngest. And so I hold her, she's seven now. I hold her in my arms. She's getting bigger and bigger. And I pretend she's my baby. And so I'll say, oh, sh- 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 be quiet, little baby. It's okay, it's okay. And she'll say, dad, I'm not a baby. And I'll be like, oh, I, my genius baby's talking. How did this genius baby learn to talk? She'll be like, dad, I'm not a baby. I'll be like, oh, the genius baby knows my name. She's calling me baby. It's okay, baby. You can say dad, dad, dad. And, she, and so we have this game we play. It's kind of silly. It's silly and it's kind of funny because it's silly. Because, uh, <laughs> because she's growing up and she's, she's more aware than ever about who she is and what she does and about who I am. Of course, she's aware that I'm her dad. I think one problem we have as Christians is that as we grow from being a newborn, we begin to think that we're the parents. And this happens in in families. I know this because I have many kids that they start parenting each other. And there's always this moment where I come in or Lauren comes in and we say, hey, you're not the dad. You You don't need to tell him what to do. I will tell him that. You don't need to tell him that. And they'll say, okay, okay. You know, we need these reminders. This is like, I take this from Peter this morning. He, he says, we're born into God's family by his mercy. This should reassure us like when dad says, you're not the dad. Like, relax a little bit. You're the child. We're not the head of this family. Or if this were a body, you're not the head of this body. And I'm not either. Ephesians 1.22 says, And God placed all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and anointed him to be head over everything for the church. Head over everything. Or Colossians 1.18, And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So we should be reassured this morning. When I worry about the state or the future of the church or our church, I am deeply reassured to remember that I am the child. You're the child. We're born into this family where Jesus is the head. God is the father. He's holding all of this. And he knows. He knows exactly where we are and what we're going through. He's keeping this all together. It was never your and my responsibility to do that. And of course, we're born into a living hope, Peter writes. See, Jesus rises from the dead. This is a story uh, out of the gospels and into Acts is Jesus rises from the dead and the disciples are filled with the spirit of God and the church grows. And then there's this pushback. People don't like it. They don't like the name of Jesus. They don't like this message. And so the apostles are, are arrested and there's this funny story that's told where, you know, the apostles are preaching in the temple. And the, so the council, they arrest them. And then they're kind of getting together. Everyone's getting together so they can, you know, get them in, in front of them and ask them questions. And as they're assembling the council, an angel goes and lets them out. So they go out and instead of running to hide, they go right back to the temple and start preaching again. Like pick up in the same sentence they were in, I guess. And they're just preaching again. And so the council all gets together and like, all right, bring in, bring in our, you know, these guys and we're going to let them have it. And they bring, you know, the guy comes back and like, they're gone. We don't know where they are. And they're like, what? How are they gone? Well, where are they? We need to get them. And someone runs in like, hey, they're back preaching. In the well, go arrest them again. Bring them back. So they arrest them. They bring them back. And um, the 
the apostles start preaching to the council. They start sharing this news about Jesus, the good news message. And the council is so angry that they say, we, we need to kill them. This is blasphemy. And then one of the council named Gamaliel, he says this thing, really key thing. He says, you know, hold on, hold on. If, if this is a human thing, like these guys are just making this up then it's going to peter out like all the other examples we have of people who claim to be the Messiah, people who started movements, and it just kind of fizzled out. Or if it's God, then we need to be careful that we're not working against God. And they respond by saying, or his speech persuaded them, this is Acts chapter 5, and they called the apostles in and had them, had them flogged. So that's their way of like going easy on them. Instead of killing them, they just flogged them which is, uh, sounds pretty bad too. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news message that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, maybe that almost sounds like a grammar error. Like I picture they would say, proclaiming the good news that Jesus was the Messiah because they're writing this after the fact. But it's, it's not bad grammar. It's a fundamental shift in belief that Jesus is alive. He is alive. That Jesus rose from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding right now for us. This is the good news that the apostles and disciples will die for. I mean, this is the name on their lips, Yeshua, Jesus. Now, every empire and movement begins with some great leader. And if you look through history, there's military leaders and there's religious leaders. There's all sorts of, you know, Alexander the Great and then, you know, starts this great empire and you've got Julius Caesar and he starts this great empire and you've got Genghis Khan and he starts a great empire and Mohammed, he starts this, you know, far-reaching religion and Buddha and you've got all these different people and the, the thing about all these uh, movements is that once the leader dies, it's beholden to the followers to keep it going. Like it's up to them to make sure that, you know, the teachings are, are, are propagated, that the empire is kept safe or whatever it is, like that they keep it going. And often it shifts imperceptibly at first, but it does shift. And over time, you know, if you look back at what the, that leader said or did, it's, you know, very far from where the, the group is maybe years later. But our founder, our first, our leader, our wise rabbi, <laughs> isn't dead. He's alive. He did die. And then he rose from the dead. And so our hope is not in a movement or an empire that we're trying to hold together somehow. It's in a person, the person of Jesus. This is the good news. Now, how often do you, do you think of this as news worth dying for, or maybe getting flogged for? Do you know there was a consumer report in 2014, so several years ago, that um, when asked one in 10 Americans would not give up their Starbucks habit if their income dropped significantly, like if there was something like a world pandemic, the economy crashed, they would not give up their Starbucks habits. So maybe today that's being tested. I don't know for some of them. 
Also, they were asked, and when they were asked, well, what's the last thing you would give up? If you had to give up something in your budget or whatever, what's the last thing you'd give up? And people said, 38% said they would never ditch their entertainment. I mean, there's no way on earth they said my, my cable or whatever package I'm streaming or whatever thing I'm connected to, I'm not losing that. You know, our comfort is, I mean, that's what it expresses our, our need, our desire for comfort. And I have talked about that with you too in this time, how much we are looking for comfort to help us. So maybe it shocks you to hear this, but this living hope is worth dying for. This living hope is worth dying for. It's not dead and it's not beholden to you. He is alive. He is alive. And we have an eternal inheritance. When uh, Sam Walton died in 1945, he left his son, Rob, $8.6 billion. $8.6 billion. That's the Walmart fortune in 1945. Rob didn't waste that money. He, he kept uh, working on it. And today, the Walmart company is worth $190 billion. Or they're part of it, I guess, what they own is worth $190 billion. I mean, that's a lot of money. Lauren and I were talking about this, and we were talking about, how, about inheritance. And uh, the funny uh, confidence that seems to come with those who, who like have this massive inheritance. Like, do you think Rob ever feared poverty? Do you think he was worried when he like ventured out and made his lemonade stand on the front lawn? Like, Ooh, I'm a bit nervous about putting some money into this. What if it, you know, what if it goes belly up? Like he wasn't worried because he knows he has at the time, $8.6 billion in family money. He's not worried or afraid about what's going to happen in his future. I mean, he's secure. But of course, the economy could crash. Investments could plummet. The stocks could bomb. The, the real estate market bubble could burst. There could be a global pandemic. Just saying it's possible. You could end up with nothing. That's why Peter's words are so profound for us today. When he says, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I mean, he says in verse 4, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? I mean... It's a helpful reminder that we don't hold the fate of the church in our hands. Or I just remind myself, Jesus' imminent return isn't being held up because my lamp keeps going out and I keep relighting it. I mean, revival is not waiting for me to figure out the step I missed. Just do the steps again. Maybe you missed one. Just do them again. Maybe it'll happen this time or this time or this time. The church isn't invested here. I mean, our assets aren't on the line. Our risk is mitigated because our economy is otherworldly. We are, in a word, unshakable. Do you believe that? We are unshakable. 
First Peter 1, 22 to 23, so a little bit, uh, a little bit lower in the letter. He says, love one another deeply from the heart for you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So what's holding you back? I mean, what holds you back? Is it your inadequacies? Is it, is it your fear or your doubt or your inability or your poverty or a global pandemic or persecution or famine or sword? I think Romans 8 has something to say about us being more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. And the people who went before you, all the people who have gone before you, the apostles and prophets and patriarchs and kings and a whole bunch of really ordinary people with lots of flaws, lots of those ones. They lived strangely. I mean, one eye here on this and one eye on heaven country where they're investments were where their inheritance was and they lived as foreigners it says in a way their citizenship of another world another kingdom our big idea this morning in conclusion is our foundation and our future are firm in jesus the world is shaking i mean it's unsure it's rapidly changing it's confused but not us not us. The church isn't so fragile that, that it could break like a window or it could be vandalized with spray paint. It's us. I mean, they'd have to kill us to destroy it. And not even then. Because we've been born again into a new and living hope. This new birth means we're growing like children, like how children grow. And it also means we aren't the parents and we need to trust God to do the work in us and around us and through us to keep us and to prepare his church. And the living hope isn't an ide ideology or an idea or a movement. It's a person. It's Jesus who died, who is alive. His promise to indwell us with his very presence to empower us to live here and now. And our new family means a new inheritance. The promise of inheritance should fill us with confidence. A boldness, especially when we know it can't be touched by the world economy. It's not in jeopardy. And this confidence should lead us to love. To loving one another and to loving the world. Will you pray with me?